Sunday, July 25th, 2021, and this is episode 257 of the Defensive Security Podcast. My name is Jerry Bell, and joining me tonight, as always, is Mr. Andrew Kellett. Good evening, Jerry. How are you feeling? I know you weren't feeling so good last week when we had to postpone. Yeah, I, I, so I will tell you, um, I've had pneumonia a bunch of times in my life. This is the first time I've had it since I've been in my 40s. It is a very different experience mm-hmm. <laughs> to have pneumonia in your 40s. Can I suggest not having it? I think that's a great idea. It's kind of scary. I, I, sh- I really should have listened to that advice. <laughs> but you're feeling better? Yeah, feeling better. I've been on um, pretty pretty hardcore antibiotics for, um, gosh, almost a little over, well, a, little over a week. And Is I'm not sure if those, for, those are uh, hard, worse than the, <laughs> the sickness or not. Right. So that's not code for meth. No, no, not no. Speed or whatever you executives take these days to keep your edge. No, no. It's, what is it? Adderall? What? What is, what it's is the caffeine? Caffeine. <laughs> Old large, school. Large quantities of caffeine. That's what we take. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Anyway. So, uh, just a reminder that the thoughts and opinions we express on the show are ours and do not represent those of our employers. Indeed. But for enough money, boy, could they. <laughs> that is. That is correct. All right. Um, so uh, before we get into the into the stories for today, I, I do want to say just a, a reminder, um, thank you to all of our Patreon donors who have stuck with us, uh, new and old. Thank you very much. Yes, very much so. Thank you. All right. So, uh, so jumping in, the first story comes from The Record, which is a recorded features blog. Uh, title is using VMs to hide ransomware attacks is becoming more popular. Uh, I think we may have talked about this back uh, when when it became it was when it was first discovered with Ragnar, but uh, the point here is it's being seen more and more in different types of ransomware, and um, you know, ca- kind of the the long and the short of it is that the uh, the adversary will spin up a VM typically used by installing something like VirtualBox or or, or Hyper-V or, or what have you and they will uh, which you know gives them a platform that typically is outside the purview of the endpoint detection tools that you have on uh, on your systems and so it gives a quote safe space for the ransomware code to run in, you know, obviously they, they the bad guys will map uh, network drives in into the uh, into the virtual machine. Virtual machine is able to you know access those files, encrypt them uh, outside the watchful eye of your security software. So, um, interesting attack technique. Um, you know, obviously. There's, I, I think there's a nascent industry around you know, introspection of the happenings inside virtual machines. But probably the more important thing from my perspective is like making sure that you know, if your system shouldn't have virtual machines running on it, that it can't. Yeah, something like an, an app, app whitelist app. Or, yeah, right. 
Yeah, I, I mean, I was thinking about it too because my first gut reaction was, wait a minute, you know, what's allowing a, a VM to talk to the host hard drives? And I was like, oh yeah, they own the VM, so they own the hypervisor, so that's right. They can they can turn that on, right? As it's a feature, um, so that you know that's one thing. I, yeah, I was thinking you know app whitelisting or allow listing uh, to be more politically correct uh, might be one solution. Another is perhaps looking for like with an EDR endpoint monitoring to watch for some sort of VM software starting up right? Uh, and alert on that, catch it early before it spreads, hopefully. But I mean, it could also, if they're smart, get it spread out and already have AD permissions, uh, you know, active directory admin rights and get it all spread out before they turn up one machine with the actual encryptor. But yeah, I mean, it's, I think you're right. It, it goes back down to locking down your hosts, which you know, that sucks for people who don't want to have to go through all those hoops to just turn on a VM to test something. But uh, if it's being used for maliciousness, we got to weigh that out against productivity. Yeah, absolutely. So interesting. I mean, interesting uh, evolution. It always evolves. Yeah. Uh, they will you know, keep finding new, new and novel ways to evade. You know, it. the other thing that's interesting, uh, it's maybe a really bad thing, but you could turn off the the VM extensions in the BIOS for your CPU. And in fact, I recently built a new box and I started up Docker or something. I was like, sorry, this doesn't work. You don't have your VM extensions on. I was like, what? And I had to go to the BIOS and turn it on. So, hmm. I mean, again, you're limiting the capability of the box, but I'm kind of wondering, I don't know, maybe that's a methodology to limit it. But again, your users can't then ever use VM software if you've got it shut off at the BIOS, uh, depending on what they're what they're running, so, so you know it's, it raises an interesting point that um, if you're using if if you're relying on app whitelisting and you have employees, especially if you think about like Mac workstations and Mac, a lot of lot of businesses let their employees run um, Windows VMs inside like something like Parallels or mm-hmm. or um, VMware or VirtualBox, and uh, you know if that's like BAU allowed, it becomes much more difficult because you can't use a like a, a blunt instrument like app controlled to block the hypervisor. You have to find some finer grained way of yeah. um, you know blocking unauthorized virtual machines. Or alert for it. I, I mean, I don't know. It, right. That could become but if you suddenly see five hundred VM hypervisors spin up in your environment, might be too late, but I don't know. I go back to how if we can't stop it, how we can catch it before it spreads too far. Mm-hmm. So who knows? I mean, I also just because we're pretty heavy on ransomware stories this week, I also wonder if this is a bit of a bit of an over rotation on the infosec press into ransomware, and how likely are we to see this VM technique? I don't know, but it's interesting. Could grow. Could just be a flash in the pan. Well, it, I think it. I think it depends on, honestly, if um, if this is the only way for the ransomware software to run in an environment, then I think we're going to see a lot wider adoption. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's all about what's effective and what allows them to get to get the money out. So, mm-hmm. one more interesting technique to know about, but I guess not one I would be on fire about yet. All right, so. Uh, Keeping with our theme of, of ransomware, uh, the next 
next story comes from uh, the Errata Security blog, which is um, our former colleague Rob Graham's blog. And the title is Ransomware, and then it's some French uh, stuff that I'm not even going to try to pronounce in my southern dialect here. Uh, so the the long and the short of his uh, his post here, which is I think pretty good, that um, you know cybersecurity in quotes hasn't really failed. It hasn't been the, the failure of cybersecurity said differently. Isn't the thing that is causing the ransomware epidemic? It's our inability to protect administrators and specifically administration administrative accounts and even more narrowly my my. Um, my arch nemesis, Active Directory domain admins. Indeed. So yeah, I mean, he, it's a good blog, and it and really he jumps is. in. Yeah, and you know, Rob Rob's a good guy. I like Rob. A lot of people get frustrated with Rob's tweets, but I think he's a very interesting thinker. Uh, and I, even when he's saying things that people don't agree with, his logic is usually interesting enough to to contemplate. So. Um, and that being said, he has a really interesting post here, and he starts it off with something about, you know, he hears a lot of platitudes, in his opinion, about how we stop ransomware by doing the basics better and cyber hygiene, which I'm absolutely guilty of. I say that a lot myself, too. Um, and I have a bit of a retort to that, um, but he's also very not wrong in saying, you know, you can do that all day long, but what's really the big mountain to climb for these guys is getting those ad uh, admin rights and if you can stop that then you really hobble them now the thing i would say in reply in reply to you know the basics and the cyber hygiene being a bit of a, a platitude is keep in mind we still have to get the initial ransomware compromise or the initial foothold in the environment. And that's where I think the better hygiene can come into play. But he's right. Once it's in, uh, we need to do a far better job, I think, of, of defending admin rights. Sorry, I jumped on your thoughts. No, but that no, it's, it's kind of... You're absolutely right. I I, um, I think I think that it comes down to that there's a an arbitrarily large uh, number of ways of you know, the, the initial infection. And and he points out that the, the the problem we have with these kind of contemporary ransomware attacks is not that you know Jerry's workstation got ransomware and Jerry's files were encrypted. That's not the problem that we're dealing with. The problem that we're currently dealing with is that these ransomware gangs get in, they f- they find a toehold and they continue to el- to uh, elevate the permissions till they get um, you know, domain admin rights or, or you know, some other administrative equivalent administrative privileges. And they go after, um, you know, effectively the entire organization in one fell swoop. So they're, they're really attacking the, you know, the, the organization as a whole or, or large parts of it. And the only way they can do that effectively is using administ- you know, some type of administrative rights. And most commonly that's with active directory. Um, he now he he does he also points out um, down towards the bottom he he points out uh, you know that that uh, he understands the attack techniques, but it's pretty transparent that he doesn't understand the defense techniques, and um, you know I, I this is something that comes up 
every now and then it's like a strobe light to me but but uh you know the strobe the pulses of the strobe sometimes are months long for a long time microsoft had this concept called red forest and eventually that morphed into um they they called it something else enterprise oh sorry enhanced security admin environment it was it was a a, a way of configuring active directory domain controllers in separating forests out so you had um, you know, effectively unprivileged or, or lesser privileged um, parts of your forest and and more highly privileged and more much more highly protected portions but um, I was surprised to see that that has morphed and Microsoft is no longer recommending that uh, concept and they actually now have uh, something called the privileged access strategy and I have not yet I had a chance to read through the details, but um, it's, it looks like it's about a year or two old. So interesting stuff. Uh, um, the the thing that was in the back of my mind as I was you know, reading his um, his post here is that a lot of the problems we have are because we have designed we we've leveraged technology. By, by we I mean like IT people leverage technology in a way that makes their job and administration and whatnot convenient. And a lot of times the way to uh, configure and, and secure these uh, te- technologies makes it less convenient and, and less uh, scalable, less efficient. And, um, and so there's a, there's kind of a, a tension there. Yeah, I think you're right. I, I would also echo what I see is that security is often very far away from these AD servers and their configuration, mm-hmm. in part because if you look at how a, a, an admin team running the AD servers can be measured and judged, it's based on uptime and availability. And those AD servers are central to running the Windows environment. So they're very protective of anything that could be a threat to their uptime and availability, which is often in contention with perceptions around security. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, if, if I go back to what I think Rob is saying here, you know, we need to do a far better job of locking down those admin creds. And there are way, there absolutely are ways to do it. I don't think many organizations implement it for lots of different reasons like you were just talking about. And, and I see as well in those admins being very concerned about security breaking it you know something as simple as turning off an older version of ntlm there might be an epic amount of pushback because they don't know what it's going to break necessarily mm-hmm. yet we know how vulnerable ntlm is especially old versions and there's so i i think you know security guys and and the ad admin guys are not usually very chummy and i i've not seen a lot of a lot of large organizations, at least, really embrace hardening those AD servers. The guys who run them every day are being judged and, and motivated in different areas, and they don't necessarily see those risks um, at all. Uh, certainly not the way security sees it. And you know, security usually is held at bay with uptime and stability concerns on those AD servers. Right. You know, like. I've had interesting conversations where somebody wanted to put an agent on an AD server to help a security tool with identifying a user map back to uh, an IP address. And even that can cause an immense fight because they just are that 
protective of the sanctity of those AD servers. Uh, but as we see, it's also our Achilles heel. And it is something that is attacked so often and so regularly that maybe that really needs to change. And we really need to get a lot closer and collaborate a lot more on that. Yeah, he he, he raises a, a one point related to the recent print nightmare debacle. And the U.S. government released a, I think it was CISA, released a, some, some instructions that ordered every government entity who was running active directory domain controllers to disable print spoolers on the domain controllers. And Rob's point was, why were print spoolers ever running in the first place? Well, that's old school IT thinking. That was your centralized, you know, administrative and support server for your environment. Yeah, yeah I, you should separate it out, though. Agreed, but I guess my my point is like it's not even it, it's not even all about just, like installing new software. It's just kind of doing the whole least privilege type thing, and uh, and, and you know, I, I've been, so this has been something that I've been thinking a lot about, and um, if, if you think about it in macroeconomic terms. The the takeaway for me is uh, on, on this post, and I think we've talked about this in the past. But you know, to to run IT, there's certain metrics that you can you can apply, like the you know the cost per headcount, or the percentage of revenue of a company that's dedicated to IT, and and you know th- there's bunches of different metrics like that, and. I think where we, you know, where we've landed is we're we're trying to continually squeeze the money out of IT, and I can't help but think that in order to operate environments in a, you know, in a more or less intrinsically secure or reasonably secure manner, using some of the technologies, basic technologies like uh, Rob is is describing here, you know, like, um, like port filtering and, and, uh, seg- network segmentation and whatnot doing that, you know, it's not, it's not magic. It's not rocket science, but it makes it less efficient. Yeah. You, you know, you have to have necessarily more it people if you have, you know, port filtering on and, and yeah. And general security is, is, a, is a, is a drag on efficiency. Right. So, so, yeah. um, you know, we, we either have to, I mean, there's, I'm, I, I'm kind of thinking of it in, in like the old project management terms, the, the triad, you know, the, um, time, uh, scope and resources. And, you know, I, I, I suspect very strongly that there's a similar kind of a, of a, um, a balance here between efficiency, security, and and capability. And you know, we we we're going to have to either we're we're going to have to uh, come up with technologies that are much more efficient and uh, operate securely, or we're, you, or we're going to have to uh, accept that we you know we're, we're going to be breached think- or or cost more. Do you think part of the challenge with this particular one is that default configuration is too loose on things like AD server 
an AD admin. And, and, and like the, the options are there, but they're optional uh, to harden it and turn it on. And that most just don't. And that out of the box is just, it's just too loose for. I, I think so. Reasons. I, I think so. And you know, he, he, he points out that there's a lot of good stuff. It's not a very long article, but it was very thought provoking for me at least. Um, and maybe it's the cough syrup I'm on. I don't know. Um, <laughs> Yeah, it could, be. <laughs> it could be. You know, one thing that he didn't put in here that I think is relevant is he, I saw he tweeted this not too long ago was, you know, if you really want to get good at this, hire a good pen tester, tell them to get AD admin rights and see how they do it and then fix that and do it again and fix that and do it again and fix that. Right. Don't do it just once. And, you know, see how they do it. And that'll start to open your mind. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's not cheap, but it's real world and sometimes as much as i hate <laughs> hate to say it sometimes you got to show the executives um with a pen test even if you know better absolutely i mean there's there's a lot of value in that um anyway wh- wh- where i was going that there's a s- some comments he made he makes earlier in the post about uh following different standards you know like iso or or nist and um, the the, pro- the problem I have with those, and I think this is what he's pointing out too, is they're they're very subjective. Like, you know, how do you know if you've properly segmented your network? Right. I mean, what does that mean? Well, clearly, then you have no hacker, so you have proven a negative. <laughs> Yeah. So, well, but but that's yeah. the that's the uh, it's the same equation of how do how have I spent enough on security or right? How do you yeah? Right, and and so a part of I think part of the challenge is that you know, um, I forget who who said this, but this was a couple years ago. Someone came up with the you know the, the analogy that um, that security isn't a science; it's more like a trade craft. It's like you know, there is no objectively right way to plumb a house. I mean, like, there's obviously certain code requirements and whatnot, but, you know, you can, you know, you, you have some latitude on on how and where you run the, the pipes and same similar thing with electrical. There's certain requirements that you have to stay within, but, you know, um, those requirements are, are obviously designed to make sure your house doesn't burn down or, or flood or... or or whatever, but um, it's not a, it's not a perfect analogy. But um, maybe maybe building furniture is a better a better analogy. We're gonna, we're gonna let it go because you're on serious drugs. Yeah, but if your plumbing is causing fires, we need to talk. Hey, if you run the the plumbing too close to the electrical, it could happen. <laughs> All right, so uh, we we beat that one into the ground. Moving on to the next uh, story. From Data Breach Today, the topic is how the Mespinoza ransomware group hits targets. Uh, the, I'll, I'll uh, let you in on the secret. It's through RDP. That is shocking to me. And yet a brand new thing I've never... No, no, no. We've heard this 7,000 times before. Correct. But it still happens. I mean, go to... Go to um, Go to Shodan and and search for open RDPs connections on the internet. It is. But Jerry, what could we possibly do? <laughs> Not do that. 
<laughs> or, or I don't know, two factor. I don't know. I mean, like again, there's so many different ways to solve this. Put it behind a VPN. Put two factor in front of it. Um, you know, not use a default password. Some things are just a step too far. I think you're asking a lot. But they they point out though that that um, in all seriousness, this is a real problem. A lot of organizations, especially less uh, less mature, or sophisticated, or maybe mature and sophisticated organizations, whose employees have uh, decided they're going to thumb their nose at IT and set up their own way into the um, you know in, in, into the the innards of the company, which is, by the way, becoming increasingly easy to do with the advent of cloud. Indeed, we have we have basically commoditized shadow IT. Yes, yes, um, and you know it's it's not a this is not a novel thing, right? But you know that once you have an open RDP uh, connection, even if it's properly authenticated, you know, a there's lots of there's lots of um, opportunities for misconfigurations and there's been plenty of vulnerabilities in the past and the other point they they uh, raise in this article is is that uh, it's fairly easy fairly straightforward if you don't have two-factor authentication to uh, fish credentials and um, and then once once they get in uh, there's some additional uh, novelties that this particular uh, threat actor is using like they're using this um open source uh what what appears to me to be a reverse proxy called chisel so they they use that as a um as, as a means to establish uh, persistence into the environment pretty yeah it, yeah it, it's meant to bypass outbound firewall rules and proxies and such and you know it's 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 really just an http tunnel with SSL inside of it over whatever port you want. Yep. Um, you can lock that down. You can monitor that. It's even proxyware, but if you're, you know, you can do things like if I can't decrypt it, I'm not going to let it through. Um, there are options. They're, again, administratively laden with, you know, a lot of a lot of overhead and baggage, but, you know, out, outbound firewall rules is something I don't think we do a good job with either in, in general as an industry. We're, we're kind of, you know, we, we we have a one-way path, you know, saying, hey, if, you know, anything in can get out. But once again, we see how most of these attacks start at an endpoint or in this case, you know, RDP to an endpoint or phishing to an endpoint mm-hmm. uh, and then start moving around laterally. So, yeah, I mean, <laughs> so many... So many of these attacks re- uh, rely on beaconing out. You know, the other thing that was interesting is that speaking of tools, that somebody in here talks about how, you know, this organization might be less well financed because they're relying on open source tools as opposed to custom tooling. Like, well, who knows? I mean, open source tooling and, and built in endpoint tools might be a good way to you know, keep a light footprint. I don't know. I, I just, I find it always suspect when some of these people try to take a, a TTP and try to apply some sort of intent behind that TTP. 
Yeah. And I think we've we have absolutely fetishized the attribution and you know intent of these cyber attacks to the point where I think we're doing ourselves a disservice. But that's just my personal proverbial sandbox. You like you just dissed an entire cottage industry now. It's bigger than a cottage. Yeah, fair enough. All right. All right. So moving on. Oh, the other the other oh, thing, real quick, is is these guys are also doing the extortion uh, tactic, where the one before they encrypted, they grab data and then threaten to release it. Which is honestly, it's surprising anymore when you hear of a ransomware attack where that's not happening. Yeah, it seems pretty uh, pretty common these days. I still predict one of these days something's going to get released through a ransomware extortion about a top executive that's going to lead to federal charges against that executive. You know there's dirty laundry out there somewhere. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm predicting that. Um, it, it is, I think it was this one, actually, uh, where they, they say that the, uh, the bad guys actually look for certain keywords like fraud and um, clandestine yeah. and... So, so you, I mean, I, th- I actually think they're starting to try to find that stuff. I should really stop giving them ideas is what you're saying. I think, I think so. Fair. Carry on. I think that's so. I do find the uh, happy ending dot bat also pretty funny. I know kids today have no idea what dot bat files are. <laughs> uh, old school. Or config dot sys. Rolling you don't even it, know. Rolling it old school. All right, moving on. Next story comes from Krebs on Security. The title is Want to Pay Ransomware Gangs? Or Don't Want to Pay Ransomware Gangs. Test your backups. Wow. Rough day. Uh, so when I when I first read this, I'm like, oh, my gosh. You know, ransomware nowadays is not about backups. Like, you know, you got so many other problems to point out. But the nuance here, which I completely agree with, is that you as an organization may have awesome backups, right? To the point where, and not notwithstanding your data is is exfiltrated and and you're being, um, you know, extorted from that from that angle. But uh, f- leave that to the side for a second. You may have great backups to the point where, like, you know, you're you're confident that um, you know you don't need the decryption key. But the point there. Uh, raising in this particular article is a lot of organizations are are still even though they have robust backups and they they haven't really lost any data they're still paying the ransom because they um they didn't really realize how much data they had and how long it would take to get back to operations and so the path of least resistance is to pay the ransom the assumption may be small individual files or sections being restored, not massive full systems times 500. Yeah. I think historically when we, when we think about backups, we, we think about it from the perspective of losing like a PC or maybe even a data center as a result of some localized, um, you know, physical event. Uh, but, when you when you get into the world of like ransomware, it's a it's a logical event that can enti- you know affect your entire environment equally at all the same time. And so the you know the the 
restrictions around geography and whatnot don't come into play. And so if, you know, you have thousands of, of workstations that have, you know, petabytes of information and you've got, you know, hundreds of petabytes in your data center and you're relying on restoring from backups, like you, you may find that it could take years to restore that information from backup. And, uh, and that's what some of these organizations cited in this, uh, in this article are, are, finding and yeah. it kind of says like there's a new dimension that we have to factor into our um our backup strategies which is this kind of pan organizational outage and you know figuring out like we have to how do we design our backup and rest- restore capability not only so that we have good backups and and can restore like in you know a particular file that's lost or particular system that's destroyed but that we can restore our entire environment in a reasonable amount of time and and that's not something i don't think uh, many organizations do yeah that's a tough one i think you'd almost have to go full virtual mm-hmm. um and you know being able to to make the machine portable i don't i don't know uh, you know i don't even want to go down that path yet uh yeah, I think you and I should start a company for fast restores. I think there's a business model there. Absolutely. It's going to be uh, Re- USB USB drives for everybody. <laughs> Restoreefficiency.com. Let's, let's work on that. Uh, no, you're right. And and so sometimes they make the, hey, we've got it, but it, it'll take years to restore, and that's not viable. So pay the money. Right, right. So, um, yeah, food for thought, right? Um so test your restore plan. Test, yeah, and somehow if they if they point out that um, a paper walkthrough tabletop exercise can help identify these sorts of things, but it's important yeah. for you. It's important for you. I mean, to think about this as you are running that tabletop exercise. I think I, I like tabletops, but I think a lot of assumptions get made that don't bear out in the real world. Fair, and I think no plan survives contact with the enemy. So. I still think a real world test is more valid than now that you should do tabletops. Don't get me wrong. Tabletops are good. I think you should do them. I think it helps, but I think you have to be very careful with your technological assumptions. We can agree on that. And that you better test those. All right. And then the, uh, the final story from tonight, a little bit of good news that uh, this comes from Ars Technica. The title is Kaseya gets master decryptor to help customers still suffering from Revil attack. So as we talked about on the last show, there was a very substantial attack uh, involving the Kaseya VSA software. And um, you know, a lot of their managed services customers uh, who, who were using VSA to manage their uh, respective customers were compromised and, and, and uh, infected with Revil and uh you know, at the time, the Revil Group was uh, demanding seventy million dollars for a master key, and I think that I think that subsequently dropped to like fifty million dollars. But then some some strange stuff happened, like uh, the the there was a, a meet, some meetings between the U.S. Uh, president and the Russian president because apparently, you know, of course, the Revil Group is alleged to be out of Russia. Um, 
the Revil uh, online presence has since gone dark. And there's no real clear indication of how how Kaseya came into uh, possession of this master uh, key, except to say that it came from a trusted third party. Uh, when when they were asked if they paid anything for it, they uh, the the company's Kaseya's response is they don't have any um, any comment on that. So which to me says they probably did. I do wonder though, typically what we see, not typically, I shouldn't say that. Sometimes what we see is a different encryption key per, you know, discrete organization that's hit by ransomware. Mm -hmm. So I wonder if this particular ransomware didn't do that, or if this was a master key, that could unlock all the, in other words, how far would this key go? Or was it something else? I, I mean, I, we're also assuming that this came from the bad guys. What if it was a flawed encryption? Well, that's the implementation. Other, there's some, there's some other hypothesis that this was, yeah, uh, we don't know. Trusted yeah. third party. Right. So, or where they bought it. Uh, I, I mean, I will say, I really appreciate Kaseya still stepping up to the plate to help right there. They got this key. They, they said they're doing tech support for their customers. You know, we, we kind of pondered in the last show, what is their responsibility in this circumstance? And it, it's obvious that they're trying to help and that's good. I, you know, and so kudos to them for that, but I'm very curious where and how they got this key and what the story is behind that. And, you know, other potential evil ransomware infections. Yeah. I don't know. It, it, it's, kind of out of the gate i got the i got the impression that um they the revil gang had set it up such that they uh, they could provide a master key to unlock all of the hundreds or thousands of end customers or they could deal with each individual customer one at a time so um i i, I really don't really don't know um you know it's possible someone in the you know, in the intelligence or law enforcement community was able to compromise their infrastructure and that's why it's no longer there and they got the keys. But again, there's no indication that other Revil victims or um, outside of the Kaseya ecosystem here have, um, have have an ability. The other thing, by the way, that um, you often hear when uh, when companies pay the ransom and get a decryptor is that uh, the decryptors usually are like, really crappy and and not um, well yeah i mean we've we've heard sometimes it takes forever to run the decryptor right right yeah they're, so they're i'm like, kind of curious clunky and not not user-friendly um and and so <laughs> don't really know exactly what um you know what the what what, what the cust the end customer the end victim experiences in this if you have systems that are still locked up like is it is it an easy process but apparently they've um they've in, uh, they being Kaseya has engaged another company called EMI was it EMI soft i think to help um help the end customers or end victims uh, recover using this key so like you said kudos kudos to them i mean it's really unfortunate that it happened but um they they do seem to be pretty committed to um you know, to, to helping their customers, you know, their customers and their customers' customers. So, um, I mean, at this point, 
given that it happened, it's hard to ask for a lot more, I suppose. On the decryptor thing, I think the ransomware games just need to hire a good product manager and adapt some agile development frameworks with some better goals. And I think they would work a lot better. That's true. I, I'm, you know, hey. Maybe some user acceptance testing. Right. I mean, I mean they got some funding. They might as well, you know. They, they do have some funding. Make a pretty UI. Like 70 million, yeah. I'm just saying. I mean, they could put a little effort in. <laughs> All right, that is uh, that is the stories for this evening. I, I do appreciate everybody's uh, you know willingness to stick with us, and I hope hope these uh, discussions help you out. And uh, with that, uh, just a reminder: you can follow Mister Kell on Twitter at Lerg L E R G, and you can follow me on Twitter at Malicious Link. I don't tweet as much as I used to, but I'm I'll probably start getting back into it soon. I hope. Uh, and with that, anything else you want to say? No. Thanks, as always, for listening and, and sticking with us through our long hiatus. And hopefully we'll get on a more regular cadence here and try to provide some small amount of value to the few people who listen. All right. Take care, everyone. Have a great week. Bye-bye. Bye.